Welcome back to Water Water Everywhere. I'm your host, Carly Vinghouse, and this week I have two very special guests that I cannot wait to introduce you to. Um, but first, I'd like to update all you water weirdos on what's going on with the show. Our very own Lila the Mermaid Glansberg is literally sailing on a ship from now until February, where she is teaching students about marine science. Uh, while I miss her, the, the show must go on and uh, I can't wait to have her back. But until then, I will be having professionals on the show to shed light on even more water related topics and issues than I even know about. So we're talking environmental engineers, we're talking meteorologists, we're talking river guides, and you guys, the list just goes on and on. So thank you for your continued support. And I hope that you all enjoy learning about these topics as much as I do. So without further ado, my very smart and beautiful friends, Siri and Kristen, are here to talk to me about the future of hydrogen in a decarbonized energy system. Hi. <laughs> Hi guys. Hey okay. there. So first of all, how's everyone doing? We are recording, um, I guess for Siri and I, it's 8.30 PM for Kristen. She's on the West coast. She's rocking 5.30. So how is everyone doing? Doing okay. Yeah. It's been uh, pretty cold in San Francisco. We're finally getting, getting some winter weather over here. Um, which is a bummer because I, I miss Reno where we get snow because in San Francisco, we just get like rain and overcast. Um, so I feel like it's not really worth it, but other than that, doing well. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. I'm based in Brooklyn and, you know, it's like oddly been kind of warm. It's like 45, 50, you know, so I've just been kind of chilling on like a short sleeve. <laughs> no, we're supposed to have like a nice warm weekend here actually, which is so weird. Um, but I'll take it. My desert bones will take it. Um, so first of all, thank you both so much for being here. Um, I'd like to give you both a proper introduction. Siri is an engineer and a tech entrepreneur who has done some very interesting research on hydrogen as an energy source. And she's going to be kind of filling in for Lila today by helping me interview slash pick Kristen's brain. Kristen works as a public utilities regulatory analyst for the state of California and also has a master's in energy economics and environmental policy. So uh, can you both kind of tell everyone a little bit more about yourselves, the work you do um, relating to today's topic and also full dis disclosure to everyone, I don't know a lot about this today. And so I'm going to be the listener today and I'm going to be asking the questions that I hope everyone is asking at home when they're like, wait, what the hell is that? I have no clue what's going on. So again, thank you guys for doing this. So Siri, um, why don't you go ahead and talk to us about what you did at the Arva Institute? Cool. So first of all, props to Carly for, um, you know, hosting today and for both Carly and Lila for setting up this podcast. It's really cool to be a part of something that your friend is working on. Um, so I'm Siri. I'm a chemical engineer by training. Um, I was a research intern for the former chief scientist of the Israeli Ministry of Science, 
um, at the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies, which is based in the southern uh, Arava Desert in Israel. I was working on um, some really interesting hydrogen research over there. So basically producing hydrogen uh, using metals, um, primarily aluminum. Um, and as an aside, I also worked on a study to see if the Southern Arava Desert's fleet of buses could be entirely fueled by alternative energy. Um, I've also worked for Wattheim, Connecticut Deep, uh, through which I worked for the US Climate Alliance. And these days I'm a co-founder and the chief tech ops officer at Juice, which is a health tech company based in Brooklyn. Glad to be here and love talking about hydrogen. Awesome. And Siri and I know each other because of the Arava. So, and that's <laughs> how Lila and I know each other. So it gets referenced a lot here, but me and Siri were roommates. No big deal. We became Woo-hoo. best friends. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I am a public utilities regulatory analyst. Again, kind of a hefty mouthful of a title. Um, but essentially what it means is that um, I am the regulator that oversees uh, the way that utilities interact with the larger grid. Our larger grid is managed by KISO, um, but obviously a lot of the procurement for energy sources is done by the utilities themselves, as well as the distribution of electricity. So all of that is um, what I, as a support to the regulator, um, am dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And I should just say as a, as a disclaimer, because I am a government employee that uh, my, all of the opinions that I express here are my own and they do not represent the entire state of California um, or the Public Utilities Commission. So got that little disclaimer out of the way. <laughs> awesome. So um, fun fact though, Siri used to live in San Francisco where you live now, oh. Kristen, and <laughs> Head, I like to imagine that you guys have been at the same places at the same time and you didn't even know it. And here you are today <laughs> coming That's together. Nice. It's funny because I know, Kristen. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I um I know a few people who've worked for like the city of San Francisco, especially like as related to sustainability and stuff. So I'm I feel like we might have just been around the same circles and like not have even known it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't graduate. I didn't finish grad school until June of 2020. So I wasn't working in like an energy capacity until uh, like September of 2020. Um, So maybe I was probably like out and about at the bars and maybe you were seeing me there. I want to find Kristen. She was, she was (laughs) hanging out at the nighttime hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, So probably didn't cross paths professionally, uh, but maybe maybe recreationally. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Kristen and I know each other um, from, you're from Reno, but you did, you went to, you did your undergrad in Chico, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, we met, I think we, after you graduated, mm-hmm. like you came back to Reno and uh, yeah. had, had many fun nights together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carly, you have like a really big soft spot for Reno, huh? Oh, the biggest. I love that. Which is where oh. Carly's from. So um, yeah. yeah, we know that. I love and- <laughs> Funny story. Uh, when I met Carly in um, Israel and she said that she um, was from Vegas, there was like a running gag joke that she was born on the strip, even though it's not true. <laughs> People would be like, this is Carly. <laughs> Just from the Las Vegas strip. <laughs> and she'd be like, I'm literally from Oh, an affluent neighborhood. Stop <laughs> telling people I was born on this trip. 
<laughs> that is hilarious oh my god I love that because <laughs> people would just be like wait you're from Vegas like we're like do you live on this trip and she'd be like no like what do you literally think this is I don't know I've seen a lot of uh single family homes on the Las Vegas strip personally so could be you can live on the trip you can you can can. yeah it's allowed I didn't but you know not yet yet. maybe one day if this pot here mark my words if this takes off I'm gonna buy a penthouse on the strip nice maybe at the aria oh oh so you know you know your Mm -hmm. stuff Mm -hmm. i act like i don't okay (laughs) are you guys ready to get into this topic yes all right cool so um i'm embarrassed that i don't know more about this because like i said siri and i both interned at the rfa she was one room next to me like she was very close to me when she was doing this research and I have no idea what she was doing that entire time. Maybe I asked, maybe I forgot, but I can't wait to learn more about this. Cause I think this is something that's very important and I could give you guys a quick definition that I found on Google, but I think it'd be way better if, um, Kristen wanted to give us like a reader's digest virgin version of hydrogen and how it can be used as a renewable yeah, totally. Um, so I feel like there's a there's a couple quick facts of hydrogen that everybody should know. And first and foremost is that it's a molecule that can be used for storing energy. So it can make energy available where and when it's needed. So that's what makes it really valuable. Um, and it's hydrogen storage is one way of storing renewable energy. And then you can use it for dispatch whenever you need that energy. Uh, but hydrogen can also be used as a chemical fuel and it's non-polluting in that context. And then hydrogen itself is not an energy source, it's an energy carrier. And you need to manufacture hydrogen the same way that you manufacture electricity, Uh, not necessarily in the process, but just in like the literal sense, like hydrogen needs to be manufactured. Um, And the manufacturing of hydrogen can be done from a variety of sources. There's, uh, you can extract it from fossil fuels and biomass from water or from a mix of both. And the majority of hydrogen today is extracted from natural gas. Um, And it's extracted in a process that requires a lot of energy uh, and emits a lot of carbon dioxide. So hydrogen as we know it today, only about 0.1% of the total total global use of hydrogen is um, derived from electrolysis, which is the renewable use of hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are those are sort of the quick facts. So yeah, what I just heard is that it's not very eco-friendly at that state when it's being extracted and and whatnot. Yeah, the, the manufacturing of hydrogen okay, itself okay. is not, um, when you're doing it from, from any uh, like source that is not electrolysis, yeah, it, it emits a lot of carbon. Gotcha. Yeah, and I can pop in and share a little bit you know, more about the research that I did because it's kind of a, a, an area um, in engineering that folks are starting to look into because it is often um, a zero carbon way of producing hydrogen that's not electrolysis because of the fact that it's so energy intensive. But just to 
you know, preface um, with a little bit of science. In theory, you can create a chemical reaction out of anything. So what we study in chemical engineering is whether those reactions are actually thermodynamically favorable. Uh, so that, that means whether the conditions around the reaction facilitate its feasibility. So scientists started realizing that you could react metals with water to produce hydrogen, but aluminum was by far the easiest because it has the fewest number of reaction steps. So that means you don't end up with a lot of byproducts and you can get a maximum yield of hydrogen. So what we were doing was reacting aluminum with water to produce hydrogen. But the problem is that aluminum has kind of like an outer shell of aluminum oxide that prevents it um, from reacting with water. Um, it really protects the, the core aluminum. So we were applying some type of a corrosive like uh, hydrogen, um, like sodium hydroxide or any other type of base, um, or we were treating it by machining it to really rough it up and, you know, um, open up its surface area. And then we were causing this reaction, which really allowed it to uh, give us like a nearly hundred percent yield of hydrogen. But, and this kind of leads into a question that I want to, you know, ask Kristen about, but, you know, like as much as this stuff works in the lab, um, and it is a zero carbon, totally clean way of producing hydrogen. Um, you know, sometimes the problem with science is that it's not always translating into policy or into the regulatory hands of the folks who choose to dispatch it. Um, the issue with hydrogen is you can put it in a, in a fuel cell with this technique, but you have to, you know, regulate for the temperature. You have to make sure that you're able to recycle the byproducts in a way that's like separate from the actual reactants, which are, you know, the pure aluminum and whatever you're reacting it with. So the water or some like base or something like that. But Kristen, like, how do you kind of envision a future in which this type of science can get in the hands of, you know, decision makers like you? Sure. So I guess um, when we're talking about sort of like what happens in between the lab and mass scale production, um, it's always a question of like, can this process or can this technology perform to scale? And currently there is really inadequate technology for what we could perceive as like the routine production in addition to the handling and storage of hydrogen because hydrogen is incredibly expensive to both store and move. And then on top of that, it's kind of like a high safety risk because hydrogen is super flammable. It right. only takes a really small amount of energy to like ignite it and have it burn. And then hydrogen fires are invisible. So it's really hard to see when a hydrogen fire is happening. And um, so all of those things together, like even when you're, cause you were just talking about like a fuel cell application of hydrogen, right? So even yeah. before we get to the fuel cell, like you need electricity um, before it gets to the electrolyzer, right? So like the business case for, for green hydrogen, it requires a lot of cheap renewables um, because a fair amount is lost in electrolysis, meaning like it's not that efficient. Like electrolyzer efficiencies are from like 60% to 80%. And then this efficiency challenge is like exacerbated by the fact that the applications require green hydrogen to power fuel cells. So that's even further losses. So when we're thinking about energy efficiency, the lack of infrastructure, how hard it is to store, how hard it is to transport, all of these factors in combination are sort of like what's prohibiting us from using hydrogen, green hydrogen in particular, as a you know low carbon fuel or as an energy resource, electricity resource. Yeah, and even like some of the issue with these types of like 
more novel technologies is like the aluminum itself is able to take care of a lot of the storage issues because it's essentially, you know, um, very energy dense. And as soon as you start interacting it with a base or some type of corrosive technique that allows you to react it with water to produce that hydrogen, that's when you're producing it. But, you know, like in order to control for temperature such that you're not, you know, you can do this at room temperature, but within a fuel cell, like the reactionary sort of components and what that would mean for safety. And, you know, like, would you actually be able to produce as much, you, as much as what you need for demand, you know, like in a dynamic sort of situation with a vehicle or something like that, like, can you actually produce a right amount? And so sometimes like, I know that hydrogen has been, you know, looked at for potentially like emergency generators or like something that's like really like lower stakes like have you seen that much in like the state of california or do you feel like it's you know pretty much like non-hydrogen alternative energy sources for now and also what are the main uses in california uh well hydrogen itself has a, like so many uses outside of just yeah. power generation itself and Hydrogen today is actually dominated by industry. So it's used like in oil refining and ammonia production and steel production. And then virtually all of that hydrogen is used supplied is supplied by using fossil fuels. So um, that's sort of the market that we're looking at right now. But then you can also use it for transport. Um, so and like the competitiveness of a hydrogen fuel cell car versus an electric vehicle really depends on those fuel cell costs. Um, in addition to the fact that we like need refueling infrastructure and in California, we're, you know, we're just now getting to the point where we're really trying to do electric vehicle charging, uh, right. infrastructure, large scale. So, you know, competing costs with where we're at right now, it's like, do we focus on getting hydrogen fueling infrastructure out there quickly, or do we focus on electric vehicles right now? Because we look right. at the cost and it's more likely for somebody to buy an EV than it is for them to buy a hydrogen vehicle. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, you can also use it for um, shipping and aviation, which is really exciting because those are sectors that are incredibly hard to decarbonize because there's yeah. uh, limited low carbon fuel options available. Like if you think about um, there's like renewable natural gas, for example, or there's ethanol, like there's low carbon fuels that you can use for other applications. Shipping and aviation is really not one of those sectors. So the prospect of being able to use like synthetic jet fuel that is a hydrogen based fuel is um, incredibly exciting. It's, it's like this is one of the sectors that we've always thought is like the highest hanging fruit versus the versus the electricity sector in terms of decarbonization. So um, I think I might I might be getting a little nerdy in, into this, but no, this is yeah, great. The, <laughs> the applications are are vast and power generation is just one of many. Yeah. And to add to that a little bit, Carly, um, I know that certain applications of hydrogen, like in terms of the experimental phase is to deploy it in situations where like the, the power that you're using is pretty stable. So sometimes like the, the fluctuation in the demand can like cause some of these instability issues with like being able to deploy it as quickly and as rapidly as needed. So like certain applications that I've seen, it's like, okay, you can actually use it. Okay. I think like a few years ago, I was actually reading a paper about using, you know, onboard hydrogen production for aviation. And it was able to work because it was just a constant like supply that was very consistent. And so it was able to, to get the job done. But I think those sorts of processes would definitely be worth 
exploring, but it's also like how comfortable would folks be if they heard like, okay, like your American Airlines flight from, uh, you know, New York to Vegas is, you know, going to be powered entirely by hydrogen. I feel like it's still like a massive stigma to, to talk anything about hydrogen. Like even when I was at Connecticut deep, like it's something that so many folks want to do, you know, um, but there are a lot of implications for how to do it safely. How, okay. Like I feel like this is all, it sounds pretty far-fetched. Like how far out do we think we are from coming close to being able to apply it in, in those sectors? Well, the thing is, is that, you know, it's hydrogen and sort of like all of its applications is, um, again, not really cost competitive. And when you're specifically talking about, like, if you're talking about the fuel application, it's a no brainer, like gasoline is just much cheaper than hydrogen, um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, just like oil, um, when it comes to seal production, like fossil fuels are just baseline so much cheaper than hydrogen. And then when it comes to um, power generation, yeah, it's, you know, we really need hydrogen to be able to be stored and transported because the places that you're really able to produce hydrogen in a cost-effective way, a place like California, um, because we have so much renewable electricity on the grid already, um, which we can use to create hydrogen, uh, the the cost to transport and store that hydrogen to places that would actually need it for electricity generation is a pretty, pretty hard value proposition. But there's a lot of analysts out there that say, you know, 2030, 2035 is really what we're looking at. But, you know, point blank, this is really a market that is going to be driven by policy, just like solar and wind were, you know, two decades ago. Places like Germany and California and even the U.S. government we threw so many subsidies at wind and solar in order to make them viable technologies, in order to make them cost competitive. And we're seeing the same thing with hydrogen right now. Um, it's happening in the, in the UK, in Japan, in the United States, in California in particular. Like there are economies that are really pushing for this to um, become like a viable use in the energy sector across a variety of applications. But it's going to take some time to get there. Yeah, I I frankly think that um, the Middle East might be the fastest um, user of hydrogen, um, primarily because I think a lot of the fear and stigma around hydrogen actually is is based in a lot of like American sort of values and and fears, and I think that. Um, why we were doing this research specifically in the Middle East um, is because like areas with a lot of geopolitical conflict don't have a lot of options when it comes to energy resources. So like the research that we were doing was like, you know, so low cost, like we just got like scrap metal and we're like trying this out, but like, imagine like scaling that up to be able to, you know, be an option for, um, you know, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, like countries where, you know, natural gas is really hard to kind of get like a, um, a sort of united access and approach to. So I could see like, you know, the Middle East specifically being like a creative spot for a lot of these technologies to pop up and, and really exercise before it it comes to the States. I mean, potentially, yeah, there, there's just, um, 
you know, a question of like, is there an economic incentive for them to produce hydrogen in the low carbon friendly way? Um, And the answer to that question is, is no, there's like, they have the lowest gas prices in the world in the Middle East. And so obviously that is a reason why they have some of the lowest hydrogen production costs when we're talking about just the way that it's produced normally. So, you know, I, I wish that it could come from, you know, a lower like economies that are not as developed as potentially Japan or China or India or the United States. Um, You know, we'd obviously love to see that happen, but unfortunately um, economics often give way over, you know, potentially the environment. So. Right. I mean, as someone in water, people ask me all the time, well, why can't we just, um, desalinate ocean water. It's almost every reason you guys just mentioned, like it's, it's not cost-effective. There's so much policy around it. Like it's just not viable right now. And I don't even know if there's talk about it becoming like a main water source, which is, yeah, not to like, you know, have an aside, but it's kind of like that conversation where like, it's like a meme going around like the internet about how, like, why can't we just like print more money? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like maybe a poor analogy, but just like the devastating impacts of like, just like desalinating water, just like, let's just like produce all the hydrogen we can. It's like, in theory might, you know, be a good idea, but really just like, is not the move, you know? Right. Yeah. And honestly, energy economics, this is like one of my favorite things to talk about. Like the the reason why we have like California, we're like fifth biggest economy in the world. Right. And we have a political base that is just incredibly on board with green industrial policy. Like it's really not hard to convince the voters of California to have to pay a little bit more on their electricity bill or to pay a little bit more in their taxes in order to subsidize, you know, green energy, green technology. So it really comes down to these states that have the capacity to do so. And I'm like nation states or states in the United States, like Germany, like California, like these climate leaders Mm -hmm. that have the money to sort of set aside and throw at R&D and get get these technologies to perform to scale, even in their own countries. And then hopefully that technology, that expertise can be diffused across the entire world. And so you can see these technologies starting to take off in in different places when they become more cost-effective and there's actual like, you know, boots on the ground proof that we've been able to make this work. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, sorry, Carly, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, these are the things that are just so frustrating. It's like, we um, we have answers, we have ways to solve problems. If people would get on board, that'd be great. (laughs) Yeah, something funny my energy professor used to say, he used to be like, politics get in the way of what needs to get done. Yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. I mean, that's literally, we could end the conversation right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's that's the whole thing. Definitely, yeah. But we won't. (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like the, the biggest aspect is like, at the end of the day, I feel like if people want it, it will happen. But sometimes people like don't know like what the benefits are, or they just have a lot of fear or it like doesn't really impact them. And I know like 
California has done this, like the state of Connecticut has done this, but oftentimes if you like kind of, you know, try to use behavioral economics to incentivize people to like lower their energy usage or nudge them based on like their, you know, their neighbors sort of usage or kind of give them like more of that sense of peer pressure to change the way they're thinking that can be an avenue for some of this, you know, uh, regulatory and political change. Cause I mean, I guess I'm so, I was so surprised when I was working at Connecticut deep, like when it came to stakeholder meetings with like our public utilities regulatory commission, like there were just so many people who like literally showed up to like either, you know, like put down solar or encourage solar or had so many opinions, you know? So I feel like oftentimes the decisions are made by the minority um, in these types of situations, because they're, they're the ones that show up. And so like, I think that as people, we do have a lot more power to, you know, demand what we, what we want. So if we demand it, maybe the government would do it. But, you know, I think the biggest friction point that I at least saw in my time was like, how do you take the science and like, how do you put that into policy? And it's something that like scientists don't really know, you know, like, because we just come up with stuff and we're like, do it, you know? But I also feel like in, in some ways it's it's not always something that, you know, um, government workers always comfortable with too, because, you know, there's so many different people with so many different types of interests. You go through like an RFP process, RFI process, like all of these different things until you get awarded a contract. So I guess like, you know, less of a question, but more of like a commentary on just, you know, how the climate, you know, can sometimes be um, for these types of things. Yeah, I mean, I guess one concluding statement that I want to make on this is that, you know, we're still working under like technological constraints that I think get yeah. ignored, right? Like there was a lot of, when you talk about like the Green New Deal that Bernie was going for back in uh, the 2020 election, um, you know, it's not feasible right now to meet our entire energy demand with wind and solar. We don't yeah. have enough technological developments and batteries. We don't have, you know, the, the public purpose programs that would transfer workers from the natural gas sector over into the solar and the wind sector. Like we would just be leaving all of these workers sort of like out in the cold and yeah. without sort of like, you know, technical training to switch industries. And like, there's just a lot, it's a very, very complex issue. And often I think when, you know, the general public is faced with, with climate policy, it's really easy to just say like, we can create energy from the sun. Like it's, uh, this is all just crazy and everybody's evil and the whole yeah. world is run by shell. And it's like, come on guys. Like, give us some credit. Like there's <laughs> the regulators <I> <laughs> are trying our best, you know, it's yeah. really hard. It's really hard to get this stuff going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, as, as much as like, sometimes we don't like to talk about it as folks who might be encouraging of alternative energy, like you can't discount like a generation of family members who've like worked in coal, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And like, who have literally made their livelihood off of some of these more, you know, carbon intensive, like resources. So I think like, especially as it pertains to hydrogen, like what types of jobs would like come from the energy climate? And we can also think about maybe the level of training that would be necessary because of some of these risks around safety and deployment and storage and the maintenance that might come from like certain engines or, you know, building infrastructure, like that might be good in one way, because the more you skill, the more you, you provide skills to, to folks, the, the more money that they can earn and, you know, the, the more, you know, indispensable their skill set becomes, but 
on the other hand, like how, how does that really work out? You know, like I know, like for instance, in Connecticut, there were a lot of like solar training programs that were actively paying folks to become like well-versed in the actual installation process and like solar cities, I think is one of the organizations or something like that. But thinking about it for hydrogen, I feel like it would require like a completely different sort of approach. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, uh, you know, hydrogen really poses this like long-term threat to oil companies because it can compete with diesel and with jet fuel. So there is an understanding like the oil companies aren't stupid, right? Like they, they know where the market is moving and there's a lot of investment happening into green hydrogen and also blue hydrogen, uh, which we can, we can talk about, which is not, not as good as green hydrogen, but um, there is a lot of investment being made by the, um, you know, by the oil and gas companies like Shell and BP, because they know like that's, that's where we're heading. So you can imagine that like those workers are, are going to be trained, um, you know, outside of the regulatory hand needing to do so. Like the market is just going to transition there anyways, um, which is, you know, a good, I would say a grain of um, hope in the bucket of despair drop of hope in the bucket of despair is not that good of a metaphor but you get what i'm saying <laughs> yeah i'm like reading the book like dune right now if you could just go into the difference between blue and green hydrogen for the listeners totally um so blue hydrogen is essentially like this like purportedly cleaner option from you can think of hydrogen as like a spectrum of colors right there's like gray hydrogen brown hydrogen and that's just like straight coming from oil refineries Um, and like just like the dirtiest possible ways to produce hydrogen. And then there's this other version of hydrogen that has come out called blue hydrogen, which is almost green hydrogen, but not quite. And that is essentially this process where you, uh, it's still through natural gas and you turn methane into hydrogen and then capture the carbon emissions. So you need this technology called carbon capture storage, which is also an example of a technology that is just not there yet like the amount of carbon that can actually be captured compared to the amount of carbon that's produced, that ratio is not looking so hot right now. Takes up a lot of space. Carbon capture does, takes up a ton of space. So does hydrogen itself actually. Um, So in like this process could roughly have the amount of carbon that's produced from the traditional natural gas extraction process um, or natural gas manufacturing process, I should say, but it's still very far from emissions free. Okay. And what, and currently like where, where you're at, Kristen, what is being used? Uh, I, I would say probably blue hydrogen because, you know, while we're like moving from away from like oil and gasoline, natural gas has a chokehold on the energy industry that is not going to go away for a very long time. Um, so it, it's just incredibly cheap and it's, it's cheap to produce, it's efficient, it's firm power, meaning that it's dispatchable when we want it. And um, all of those factors combined sort of speak to the fact that the natural and gas industry is likely to sort of latch on to the hydrogen movement um, and blue hydrogen in particular as a method of greenwashing um, or sort of claiming that they're doing something environmentally beneficial when in reality, it's actually not that environmentally beneficial. Mm-hmm. which happens across the board for any mm-hmm. renewable resource or mm, 
even further, I'd say <laughs> greenwashing happens everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say kind of in like what we were speaking with, um, when it came to like the regulatory aspect of some of the stuff is that like so many of the states like around the Trump, you know, presidency as like, we know, like committed to, you know, the Paris agreements, like as the U S climate Alliance. Right. But a lot of those, like a lot of those milestones still have to do with like electric vehicles, which is what you brought up. Kristen is that like so much of the funding is going towards like essentially electrifying the whole system. I think like in the state of Connecticut, like by 2030, they had some really aggressive, like 90% or something like of their vehicles, they wanted to make them electric. So in even thinking about like a hydrogen future in which any of this is feasible, it's like not actually where the funding is going, like on a state by state level and California. And I know Connecticut have like some of the most aggressive sort of climate change sort of policies. And I'm not really sure I could see that changing either, you know? So in terms of like like folks knowing where the industry is going, but then where the state's like funding and, and like aggressive sort of plan of attack is going is like kind of two separate things, you know? And so contextualizing that within like how feasible these technologies are, I feel like is super important too. Um, but kind of on that note, Kristen, like how do you kind of go about like your day when it comes to thinking about these various types of like topics that we're discussing like how do you is it that you're part of a lot of stakeholder meetings or are you constantly interfacing with the public like you know I know that PUC sort of work can be like really really intense and you know don't want to put you on the spot but thought I'd no, ask. I mean so in my role um, I, I work in advocacy so that means that the you know judges and the commissioners will open up proceedings dedicated to specific issues and then they sort of like ask stakeholders opinions on what they think should be done. And then, you know, me as an analyst will write essentially policy briefs, um, sometimes testimony, sometimes participating in hearings, like getting policy recommendations in front of a judge and arguing why it makes the most sense. Um, that's, that's sort of like my day to day. And then also responding to other stakeholders that are involved in the proceeding and saying like, your idea is not great. And this is why yeah. and sort of advising the commission, like this is the best route forward. Um, so that's what I do all day is I write memos and briefs and testimony, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Doing the Lord's work. Seriously, girl, <laughs> keeping us Proud all alive. Proud of you. Um, can we, um, I want to quickly shift this and relate it to water. Yeah. Cause that that's what we're here for baby. And mm -hmm, hell yeah, <laughs> I know you briefly, we talked earlier about hydroelectric generation from water sources. Could you kind of go into that? Sure. Yeah. So hydroelectricity, um, is, uh, I just, Oh, sorry. Hydroelectricity is produced when you take like moving water and then that rotates a turbine shaft. And then that movement is converted into electricity with an electric generator. That is what hydroelectricity is. So when you think about uh, California and its drought, we used to have a lot of hydroelectricity in the state and it has reduced almost by half. And that's because the water resources that fuel our hydroelectric generation are primarily from the Sierras and snowpack. Um, and so when we're thinking about drought years and we don't have any snowpack, 
we don't have any water to use for that um, electricity generation. And, you know, the water gets divided elsewhere for like municipal use, industrial use, agricultural use, sort of becomes like low level priority to use water for um, hydroelectric generation. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. An aspect of that I was going to add to actually is like, even when it comes to modeling these facilities, it's actually really hard in real time because of the way that they're often dispatched. So it's like often really hard to get like any type of like real-time grid data on like hydroelectric uh, dams. And so sometimes it's even like difficult to just like be able to anticipate like at what point that's going to come on the grid and how that, you know, kind of coexists with like other energy sources and that type of thing. So it like ends up being like just a little bit like spotty, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Wow. You guys, I feel like I've sat in on, um, on a senior level lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I feel smarter. And also like, I'm definitely gonna, um, replay this a couple more times so that I, I have fully grasped these concepts. You guys are so smart. And I'm so happy you, you both are here. I yeah, would not have been able yeah. to do this any justice. It's really cool to like hear about what Kristen does because she's actually like, yeah. you know, actively in it on a day-to-day basis. And like, you know, the work that you're doing like affects all of us, like across like the country, you know what I mean? Like California being such a leader and, mm-hmm. you know, I might be really rough around the edges because it's been a while since I've seen this sort of stuff or thought about it, but it's always great to talk with folks who, uh, you know, like see the value of hydrogen or at least, you know, like to think about it in, in terms of the future. Yeah. And I mean, likewise, I, I was trained as an economist, you know, like I am not an engineer. So I am often one of those people that needs to get educated about the technological constraints. And I'm often sitting in my job and being like, am I qualified to be here? Like I took calculus, but I did not, you know, I've never done like really intense engineering. Um, yeah, but so I'm often like looking to be educated by that. And it's it's always good to sort of get the refreshing perspective from the private sector, or the R&D sector. That's sort of like all of these engineers that are like, you know, trying to produce these these solutions on the ground. And um, obviously you guys, you guys are the ones doing it and we're trying, we're just the ones that try and make it cost effective. So, you know, who's the, who's the real hero in this situation? Um, yeah, was... maybe Carly, maybe Carly is the hero. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would say so. Keeping our nation's water safe, bro. Yeah, it's legit. <laughs> I wish I did more. <laughs> <laughs> you do just enough. You do just real, enough. Tell the listeners what R&D is, because I don't think a lot of people are. Oh, in that. sorry. That is, um, that is the lingo for research and development. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Okay. Is there any thing either of you would like to add or tell the listener that we maybe haven't touched on yet? I would just say like, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but there should be a general takeaway that like there is a future of a hydrogen economy mm-hmm. and, you know, the investment is happening across the world and there are some large scale projects that are, you know, demonstrating how it's done. It's going to take a while and there's sort of like a lot of hype around it right now. Um, but I think, you know, in the next 20, 30 years, we're really going to be looking at a decarbonized energy system where hydrogen is playing a big role. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, I'd also encourage folks to just take a look at the research too, because honestly, I think there's so much innovation happening with hydrogen primarily because there are a lot of different ways of like attacking the problem. Um, and I think it's like, you know, economies that like really need alternative energy resources for various political reasons or, you know, lack of resources to begin with that are like really going to be leading some of this technology. I mean, as to whether it's cost efficient, you know, like we don't know, probably not, which is what, you know, Kristen, you know, educated us on. But I think like that's what I'd really encourage. And a lot of the science is also super accessible, um, depending on like the sorts of papers and stuff that you that you look at. You can read the abstract and that often like lets you know if it's like worth pursuing, if you find it interesting. And um, that's what I'd encourage from the science side. Awesome. Well, thank you both again so, so, so much. This was way more informative than I thought it would be. <laughs> Thanks for the backhanded like, so compliment, Carlo. No, no, no. <laughs> like, Legit. I, I thought I knew more, but apparently I don't know anything. <laughs> thank you so much yeah um, thanks for having us she says as she cries <laughs> I'm just crying <laughs> no. thanks for um, having us of course and um would you would you guys like to um maybe add some followers to your IG should I throw out your handles um Siri do you want to throw out juice real quick yeah. So if anyone is interested in um, learning more about my company juice, uh, feel free to follow us at getyourjuice.app on Instagram. Um, we're basically building out a curated uh, software enabled wellbeing marketplace to match modern nomads with wellness services. So feel free to check out my work there. Um, and I'll let, you know, Kristen, you know, promote herself too. I actually don't, I don't have any plugs and my Instagram's private. So follow the Finsta uh, baby. Yeah. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> um, the Finsta will remain confidential on this podcast. I'm like a government employee with a Finsta, like send help. I was just about to say, I was like government beyond that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh you guys can all just you know take take me at voice value not face value because it's a podcast but um yeah just I'm gonna go back into mysterious oblivion so thanks for listening awesome well again thank you both and as always thanks everyone for listening this has been so great and I hope you enjoyed it so don't forget to follow us on instagram at water.com water everywhere. Um, our website is waterwatereverywherepod.com and please give us a follow on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Thank you so much. We will be back next week.